Oh, inhale God and blow my last wind into your body. Your exhale be the Holy Ghost for this land. I can't breathe. conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this episode, we're excited to share our conversation with American poet Jessica Care Moore. She's the CEO of More Black Press. She is the executive producer of Black Women Rock, and she is the founder of the literacy-driven Jessica Care Moore Foundation. We're really excited about this. Um, But before we get to that, uh, April, what's on your mind? For this episode, I thought it would be fun to share our um, New Year's resolutions, or as I like to refer to them as intentions, with our listeners. So what do we... (laughs) (laughs) Intentions, because if you fail, it's fine. Well, I thought we should call them racial resolutions, and so that could be fun. Oh, But either way, either way, either way. Yes, our racial resolutions. Racial intentions is good, though. Racial intentions. I just don't like to fail, and so... Yeah, that's fair. Racial intentions sounds like a Michelle Geller movie. It does, yeah. You know? But that's just me. Um, An interracial relationship during the holidays. Right. Oh, that movie's been made, I feel like. Yeah, it has. Anyway. um, Wait, so what do you mean? Get Out. (laughs) Wow! Intentions, I mean, uh, how do we, uh, what plans do we have for the new year to practice our anti-racism, to be activists? Um, Got it, got it, got it. And so, uh, things like, for me, things I've been thinking about. Wait, are you just going right now? Kind of. Okay, go ahead. Well, I have one that I've been thinking about. At work, um, as a black person in a white space, as work, as we so often are, one of my racial resolutions is to not let microaggressions slip by. Ooh. Unaddressed. Wait. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a lot, and it's gonna. It will. If I am successful, it will be rather time consuming, um, and I may need to be creative about how they're addressed when they come up. And mm-hmm. notice it's the when, not right. if. Um, but my, my resolution is to uh, address each one um, in every instance. And so I think, yeah, the point of that being we can only improve ourselves if we know um, when these things come up. For example, if you're talking with a coworker and they, let's say, commit a microaggression, if it's not addressed it's possible that they'll have no idea. In a perfect world, you know, they would know and, you know, know to do better next time. But I feel like if these things are not addressed, it only uh, does a disservice to the entire process. So my resolution is to address these things when they happen um, and create sort of a, a teaching moment out of them each time. So when your coworker tells you your hair looks um, wild and wacky, pause. Uh, If it's appropriate in that conversation, address it. 
explain why wild and wacky aren't necessarily appropriate terms to describe someone's natural hairstyle. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's just, to me, that's just so, yeah, go ahead. If it's not appropriate. It's so basic, but right. Yeah. If it's not appropriate in that conversation, then find another time to sort of work it in uh, to your interactions with this person. Uh, if it's a, a serious case where it's, you know, these are prolonged aggressions or they sort of um, escalate, it may be a, a different resolution may be necessary. But my goal is to have these conversations whenever they occur, as often as they occur, and to turn them into teachable moments for my peers at work. I feel like that is a um, that is a high bar to set. I'm happy for you to set challenging goals, uh, intentions. Um, I, yeah, so now you got me thinking. So I think, you know, for me, I want to sort of do something that's similar. And I think my, my big sort of peeve is with euphemisms that people use. So words that are, are or phrases that people are using to describe what I think we can all agree is just either racism or something that stems from racism and people using um, other words to, to, for, as a sort of a stand in. So white privilege is a big one Mm -hmm. um, that people use a lot as a, as a stand in for, uh, I didn't have something bad, something racist happened to me um, or I avoided racism in some way because it isn't applicable to me. And I, uh, that is a benefit that I have of whiteness. Um, so it takes, takes a lot longer to, to say that than it does just uh, white privilege. But white privilege, in my mind, is a, is a manifestation of white supremacy, right? So, like, not only is it not an accurate term, it's not a privilege to not get your ass beat by the police at the same rate as black people do. It also is, it serves, I think, as a sort of distancing term. Um, and so I'm going to call those out. I'm trying to think of other good... Um, other euphemisms that people say, oh, like racially charged, racially charged language, or like um, you know, right, or or um, racial sensitivity classes. That's another one. That's a um, that that people talk about a lot in my field in higher education. I think that will come into play often, John, when people are talking about gentrification, mm, things good like one. Yeah, up yeah, yeah. and coming. Up, oh my goodness, war zone. Uh, rough area, rough area, even just good or bad. And when they're describing, right. people are describing a neighborhood. Um, you know what they mean, um, but it's not. Those things aren't said explicitly because it sounds horrible. But the intention is still there. That'll be tough. And I think another big part of it is calling it racism generally. So when people, when I hear white people, I'm heartened when I hear white people say. I'm going to work on my own racism. I'm going to work on my racism. It's like, good, that's what it's called, A. Mm -hmm. And it's good to hear you calling it that and committing publicly to working on it. If we go back to our our FTRs from the first season, which you might remember, um, uh, and I'll just go through them quickly, actually. The first fundamental truth about racism is that all white people are racist because all white people benefit from this racist system. The second is that being called racist is not a slur. It's just an observation. Uh, the third is that it's white people's responsibility to fix racism. Uh, and the fourth is that uh, white people, when engaging in talks about racism and about race, it's your job to more than anything listen and learn. 
Um, and then the fifth, FTR, is that it applies to, to both of us. And so uh, the only reason I mention those is because is, is that these, these FTRs apply to both of us uh, as your host and as your half-white podcast host. Um, the only reason I brought that up is because calling yourself racist and calling your own things that you do racist is not a slur. It is not a conversation ender. It is not the end of the talk. It is the start of it. It's the beginning of it. Um, and it's the most honest point of it. And so that's another thing that I think people... It's another benefit to these, even what we're talking about, these um, resolutions that we have is it's, this will help everyone, hopefully, but we are, they sound harsh. If they sound harsh, it's only because the FTRs aren't being thought, are being kept in mind and the, and the fact that racism is not an insult, it's not a slur for us to like, used to call people out in a way that is meant to shut them down. Um, and hopefully it'll only work to normalize the term where you might hear it in the news sometimes. You know, the news anchors are so, uh, it, they so rarely say that, you know, so-and-so is racist because he did all of these racist things. Right. It's like it took him- so-and-so is, uh, you know, in the conversation for racially charged language they've used over and over and again. Right, it's It's a part of who they are. Okay, right. Yeah, let's, it took, let's it, call it what it yeah, is. Yeah, it took the news media almost four years to start calling Donald Trump racist, and now he's not president anymore. So it's like, okay, so that whole time, right? back when we knew, you know, back in the 80s, it, you know, people, if he were branded as a known racist and everyone knew that about him, maybe he wouldn't have made it to where he was, you know? But, like... Probably would have. But it's but, true. But it's but so true. Not. Anyway, my second racial resolution will be working to lessen the influence that my moving to the neighborhood I'm in right now and purchasing a home has on gentrifying that neighborhood. Hmm. So, as... Jonathan just mentioned, our, the fifth FTR is all of the things we talk about on this podcast, all of the FTRs, all of the conversations that we have, the action items apply to both of us very much so. So I recognize that in moving to the neighborhood that I did, a, a, I'd say mostly all black neighborhood, um, purchasing a home, so this is a long-term move, we would hope, um, myself and my sister as being half white adults are participating in gentrification. The neighborhood that we're in now, it, it's a slow process, um, I guess sort of fortunately. Um, we know it's happening and we see how we influence that. And so my goal is to lessen that as much as I can to fight against that. And that will show itself in different ways in participating in the community in a way that only you know, helps to enhance the community in that enhancing the peop- the lives of the people who already live there um, from, you know, participating in, in uh, when things are back in person in uh, community council meetings and, um, and voting on things that will affect my community to picking up trash that, you know, strangers leave around um, if only to make the, the neighborhood more beautiful. Um, Wait, so-, so how do you, can you describe, uh, you know, I have, feel like a lot of people are going to say, wait, how can you be gentrifying? You're black. How is that? How is it that you are gentr- a gentrifier? Yeah, so part of it will be very obvious when my white mother uh, <laughs> moves uh, in with us at some point down the road. Um, but the realization is 
my sis Jubilee and I, who, who live in, in this house, are both half white. And with that comes um, uh, aspects of white supremacy that we, we've grown up with. I, uh, half of our family is white, um, you know, and I've received so much support for them, from them over the years, influent, been influenced by them, and that allows me to do and uh, say and experience the world in a way that dark-skinned black people don't get to do mm-hmm. or don't get to experience. So yes, I'm a black woman, um, but yes, racism is so gross and insidious that my lighter skin affords me more opportunities than uh, those of sometimes of a darker-skinned black person. Um, so recognizing that, fighting against it, um, in ways that I can. And a big part of that is uh, lessening the effects as much as I can of gentrification in our neighborhood. Hmm. That's good. That is a, these are some heavy, these are some heavy lifts. Yeah. Um, well, so is this one, I think. I think, I think that one of mine has to be um, being a better intersectional feminist, right? So like I, talk, I talk about race all the time, um, but I need to make sure that I'm pointing out the ways that so often just talking about race and black people generally does not adequately capture uh, the extent of the harm that is inflicted on the race because half of black people, black women, um, have it worse than black men because they have to deal with sexism too. Um, And so um, you're a good example of that. Um, And... You know, you and Jubilee, uh, my sisters, are an example of that. And so I just, I call out racism all the time, and I talk about race and black people and all the time, but I need to remember that it is not, not only are we not a monolith, obviously, there were so many different types of black people, but even in the most uh, obvious and blunt ways to slice and dice the black monolith, male, female, woman, man, um, and all the varieties in between, um, it are... It's not, that's just not an accurate, it's doing a disservice to, to talks of race and racial equity in order, uh, yeah, to, 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 uh, to leave those things out does a disservice. Yeah, you suck. Yeah, okay, wow, great. So, this is good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Goals accomplished. Right. Um, should we leave it at two? Yeah, let's do two, two each. each. Um, okay. I'm just so excited to... Are we, wait, so do we tell people, like, so comment in the... The comment section, your intentions. So we'll ask. Let's let's do this. <clears throat> I don't get social media. Yeah. So I'll point down. Right. Smash so the stop talking. Button. Stop talking. Except, except, yeah, you're done. Um, so as the person who does our social media for Black and what I'll say is, and leave this all in by the way. What I'll say is because I need people to know how inept you are when it comes to social <laughs> media. Because um, you drag me for every other reason on this show. Um, when it comes to sharing our podcast with your friends, I'd encourage you to share it also with one of your resolutions and note in your whatever text you type that uh, this is something that um, the, the hosts are asking to, folks to commit to. So share your, your, uh, your resolutions. But of course, um, you know, hit us up on Instagram at Black and Podcast. And so that's the, so at is the symbol it's that, the, it's the like at symbol that you, and so people say yeah. that, that's the start of a handle on Instagram. So you can use like a username handle. Okay, and we'll ours talk about is, what a handle is. Right, later. so ours is black and podcast. 
Because that's all, our show. Because that's the name of the show, all written out. <laughs> exactly. So you get it. Um, exactly. So I'm, I was oh smart God. with that. Um, so, but hit us up there, all joking aside, and share some of these, uh, some of your experiences. We, we post all the time, especially right after we have a new, uh, a new episode. And so, um, yeah, we were, we, we'd love to hear them. But please also, April, smash the subscribe button, which I cannot even say with a straight face, um, when it comes to the podcast uh, in Apple Music and, and elsewhere. You can do this on your smartphones, people. Yeah, so there's your, a computer There's a computer in your phone, April, nowadays. Yeah. Um, but yes, all that is to say, those are our uh, racial resolutions. But for now, let's get on to our conversation with poet Jessica Caremore. Let's say all around inspiration. She is, I can't. Utter. Activist, everything. She's just, she's just all the things. And we are so excited to share our talk uh, with you all. So Jessica Caremore, welcome to Black And. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Would you do our listeners a favor and start by just telling them a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? Um, you know, how does your childhood and early life, how has that affected your, your remarkable career now? Just tell our listeners a bit of background about yourself, if you would. Wow. So I'm a, I'm a Black girl poet from the west side of Detroit, um, born and raised in the D, a beautiful Black city. Um, grew up in a a house full of kids with my mother and father. Um, father was a big influence in my life. Thomas Moore, uh, construction worker, hard hat man, um, that really raised me really well. And uh, I, I've made a, a living for the last 25 years as a as a full time poet and writer, uh, cultural mm-hmm. activist, and and void filler, you know, institution builder. And um, and that that's because I, I grew up in a place called Detroit. I grew up on. Ward and Tyerman on the border of Dearborn, uh, Dearborn, Michigan, that people don't know, uh, has the biggest masjid in the country, uh, the biggest, largest um, Arab population in the country outside of the Middle East is in Dearborn. So I grew up on a, a very deep cultural divide, um, which intersected my life as well. I had to walk through Dearborn to get to my predominantly white Polish Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I was a dreamy little girl that um, thought I was going to be a uh, veterinarian or something and uh was fascinated with animals and and uh and curious about life and stories and and um I was meant to be a poet you know because we poets have these different set of eyes that you're working with and so um and so I just grew into it I I realized it was poems that were talking to me and that were calling me um but I knew there was something different about me quite early and um and so I'm still quite different you know <laughs> such a of a big time I'm a nerd and um and, uh, but my tutelage, you know, the, the way I learned, I didn't go get my my, my MFA in poetry. I, I sat under incredible writers and poets that I read when I was just a little girl. I got to meet them. You know, I got to meet Alice Walker and, mm. and I got to become friends with um, our Philly sister and my mother, uh, other mother, Sonia Sanchez, and people like Amiri Baraka and The Last right. Poets and Gil Scott Heron. You know, I'm a child of the Black Arts Movement. And um, these people are my friends, Baba Hakim Adabuti in Chicago. I've been under, you know, sitting under some some really important legends for a long time, and I've taken a lot of notes and really always just trying to make them proud. Um, that was always my model, you know, was just making sure that I was um, doing what I think I'm supposed to have done, 
um, some some torches have been put in my hands and they're heavy <laughs> and sometimes mm-hmm. overwhelming. Um, so I do my best to to carry them and and to and to pass them on. So. Could you, uh, you mentioned Detroit and that uh, having, you know, a profound effect on you and your career. Can yeah. you, can you just dive into that a little more? Do you think it, is that just city life or what about Detroit specifically as opposed to other cities maybe has affected your career? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm in my dining room and I live in historic Boston Edison, which is one of the historic black neighborhoods in Detroit. You know, Detroit created the black middle class in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, from 1973 to 1994, uh, we had a man named Mayor Coleman A. Young in this place. And so I grew up with a very rowdy gangster, outspoken, fighting against white supremacist mayor named Mayor Coleman Young. And I thought that's what all mayors were supposed to do. You know, I just thought that's how mayors were. They wore fly hats and they talked a lot of shit like my daddy and it got things done for black people. And so, you know, and that was from 97, that's 1973 to 1994. That's literally my entire life, like before I moved to New York. My father died um, in the same year that Mayor Coleman Young died. I believe it's around the same year, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe he died a little bit later. But my dad died in, in 94, and the and Coleman A. Young stopped being mayor in 94. So maybe not mm-hmm. his passing, but definitely his passing on from mayor. And and that um, shaped me. When I moved to a place called Harlem and a place called Brooklyn, you know, I came to this police state, right? And I had never seen so many white police officers in black and brown neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are all these white police doing in here, you know? And so I, I came up with a, a black mayor, black school board, you know, not always black teachers, but definitely, um, uh, but definitely there, black educators, and saw the possibility of ownership and institution building. And that's what shaped me. That's what made me different than, I mean, I was on the roaring scene, the, the 90, the roaring 90s poetry oh. and artsy, you know, from, from 95 to 2000, making my mark there as a poet and a writer and an activist and, um, and becoming better around, the, you know, being around people who were writing better than me and learning from them. And, um, but it was Detroit that truly raised me and my father being such a strong influence in my life. Um, that made me independent, that made me search for black ownership. Like, I didn't understand, like, it wasn't, like, I didn't go to New York to go get a record deal. Like, I won the Apollo. I had been living there for five months, and I met with everybody, Sony, Elektra, all these other people, got mm-hmm. managers, and and I turned down, like, two or three record deals, you know, because I didn't like the contracts. And so, because I didn't come there to, for this, to, for New York to discover me. You know, I was discovering right. New York, and I was trying to figure out how to carve my voice um, in the middle of this big city with all these millions of people. And I'm just this little black girl from the west side of Detroit. And I came there and tore that city down so fast, you know, and just claimed it and, <laughs> and just went to the Apollo and took poems into a, a black space. So that was natural for me. Like, for me to go to the Apollo, because I was from Detroit, so being in front of black folks was normal. Right. You know, it wasn't the abnormal. I wasn't going outside of myself being on the Apollo stage. That's where I knew my work could connect with my community. And so I was just going to where my people were. And that's what I learned as a as a child of the Black Arts Movement, metaphorical child of the Black Arts Movement, that that's where you the poets are supposed to go to the people. I'm not supposed to be up in the hill. You got to come do an obstacle course to come find me. <laughs> I'm supposed to come find you. And so so Detroit definitely did that. Um, it's it's my grit. It's my grind. I was born on the West Side. And I was, you know, a good girl. But even 
even good girls in Detroit, you know, who are scholarly and intellectual and all these good things still, when you're, you live in this place, you, you see things. I, I, I've seen people shot. I've been, have, I've had guns to my head. I've, mm. my friends have been killed. Um, from the time I was 14, I've been burying people, still haven't stopped burying people. Um, you know, and so it's, uh, and all of that is in the work, you know, and, but, you know, I have been blessed with the opportunity to write myself out of my circumstances. And that's, you know, black girls aren't allowed an imagination, you know, like Intazaki Shange, I love the way she spoke about the right to an imagination. Like everything doesn't have to, doesn't have to be realism. Like sometimes we get to right. escape this place, man. And, and so what's funny is that I went to Ghana, you know, traveled all over, but I went to Ghana for the first time for the return, I wanted to be there, Brie, in 2019. So me and my son, you know, I set up a tour for myself in West Africa, and we toured there and and and, and vacationed there for 18 into 19. And you know, on the way on the plane, when I was taking my then, I think I don't know how King was in 11 or something, you know, taking my son to Ghana for the first time, I forgot that I hadn't been there because I yeah. had been to Ghana so many times in my imagination. I was like, oh, I don't been to Ghana, and I was like, wait, maybe I no, I haven't been to Ghana. I no. forgot, you know. And so the power of being able to to travel um, in your brain and your mind is um, such a powerful tool. And but yeah, being from being from Black Detroit, which is we still one of the if not the blackest city on the planet. You know, let Detroit do it. Um, shout out to to Biden Harris because you know we wasn't going to let that happen. Right. I was I was just about to I was just about to take it there because we were just you know we were recording this shortly after the election and uh, Detroit, Philadelphia, where April and I both are, and Atlanta were just oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cities that came through, uh, so we are, we're we're very proud of that. Um, but you know, I have a, a a follow up. So you 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 mentioned a couple times that you consider yourself a void filler. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? What from a sort of from an activist standpoint, I guess, what is that? What does that mean? You know, I'm an artist activist. So I mean, for 16 years, I've been executive producing, and curating, and hosting uh, a very large content series called Black Women Rock, uh, Daughters of Betty which is um, a homage to a woman named Betty Davis who lives in the state of Pennsylvania. She's in Pittsburgh, and she lives there, and I love her very much. Shout out to Betty Davis. We love you. And um, she was married to Miles Davis, if people don't know her story, and she was um, a before her time, and she helped push um, the, the needle for black women in rock and roll and funk. And um, she was beautiful and sexy, and um, men in the industry were afraid of her. And so I identified with her as an artist <laughs> who's sexy <laughs> and um, terrifying to, to the meek. And all my women friends, like Joy and Timur Kali and Imani Azuri, Liza Colby, Kimberly Nicole, I mean, countless women, Nick West, Divinity Rocks, Stephanie Christian, Julie Dexter. I mean, these women, Dionne Ferris, like, I happened to be a poet that was very interested in sound, and so I was on, in New York City, I found myself around black rock artists um, because the poetry scene was not big enough for what I wanted to do, and I wanted more audience. And I found some some freedom in uh, rock and roll and in drum and bass and funk um, and finding ways to wrap poems around it, but also uh, connecting myself to that community. And so for 16 years, I've been celebrating black women in rock and roll. My musical director is Kat Dyson. And we do this thing where we bring, you know, women, a, a black women rock orchestra, if you will, together um, annually in Detroit. We rocked the Apollo yeah. Theater, Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Um, we brought it home to Pittsburgh, actually, in 2019 to the home of Betty Davis. And she sent me and Nona Hendricks, um, who does the show as well, Shout out to the living legend, Nona Hendricks. 
Um, and so that's that's what I mean by void filler, because I was producing for the National Black Arts Festival in 2004. I was on the Young Producers team. And the National Black Arts Festival at that time was like the baddest festival on the planet, or everybody who's everybody came to the National Black Arts Festival in Atlanta. Um, but I wanted to bring something very different. I asked if, you know, how they felt about me bringing a rock concert. And I said, I want to bring these black women I know who play rock and roll and jump in mosh pits. And I want to have a conversation about race and inclusion and why we're not, you know, why black women don't, rock artists don't get any play on urban radio stations, right? That's supposed to support black radio, but they don't. They just play the fives. The three girls who sing R&B every five seconds. So they don't get... And then the white radio stations don't play them either, right? And so these women didn't have a space. And I felt very much in um, connected to them in a kinship with them because I'm a Black woman poet who doesn't always get the call because I'm a Black woman poet. And um, it had to make a way. Like, these are women who have literally traveled all over the world. I've traveled all over the world. And people still might be like, well, who's that? Who's Jessica Kiermore? Who's Divinity Rocks? Or, you know what I mean? Like, who's Yadara? You know? <laughs> and these women are like, <laughs> absolutely, Jesse Wagner. Like, these women are extraordinary artists, right? Um, Wumi, you know? Uh, just... I mean, I can go on and on, and and I and I found community within them, and so that's what I mean that there was a void in that. And, and for, I've been doing this for 16 years. That first year because of COVID, not doing the show, we did it online. Shout out to Jackie Vincent in Houston, um, in, in Austin, Texas, who's who's a phenomenal on, on guitar, and and we still need the space. Like you know, I'm yeah, thinking, uh, well, I, they don't need me to produce the show no more, but I do because there's so many women um, who are playing guitar and singing rock and roll and who are really about that life. Who don't get the spaces or the or the nods, and yeah. so um, so that's what I mean. And then more black press was in '97. I started that in Brooklyn. Started publishing poets. I published the words on fit in my mouth. Sold about twenty thousand copies of the book, which was crazy for the moment. It still is a lot of poetry, but right now I learned, and uh, I was just a baby. I was 22, 23 when I started my press. Published Saul Williams' first book right after that in '98, the seventh octave, and. Mm -hmm. um, kept pushing. You know, I got Raz Baraka's first book. He's our, our mayor, our poet mayor of Newark, New Jersey. Um, he wrote Black Girls Learn Love Hard after his sister was um, murdered in, in Newark. Mm -hmm. And I published Danny Simmons' first book of poetry, Russell Simmons' brother, who started one of the founders of Deaf Poetry Jam, his mm -hmm. first book of poetry paintings. And so that's, you know, and that's kind of what I feel like what sets me apart, I think. Um, it, my legacy is just a little, it's the poems and the work um, but it's also about um, amplifying other voices in the work, and because it, it's just not fun if it's just you, right? <laughs> so I'd love to hear more about your your personal creative process, with a sort of particular focus on how um, thinking about this past year, especially how it's affected by you know trauma and this you know ongoing pandemic and uh, police violence and, and a really intense election. Could you, could you tell our listeners about how that has affected your process and maybe in what way? Oh my God. I mean, there's a lot of, you, you mentioned so many different, um, traumas. And so I could start with COVID-19. I mean, COVID just truly, um, swept, literally swept the rug from under my feet and many artists who are independent, you know, we are the gig workers. And it's the first time that, you know, I heard, you know, people in, in the unemployment world actually saying the word gig worker. And I was like, wait a minute, that's us. Yeah, right. We live off gigs, you know, we don't have like a big, you know, record deal or whatever. Everybody's kind of, you live gig to gig and you keep on moving. And so um, 
COVID hit hard because I am in Detroit, our black city. We're like, you know, 15% of the entire population, you know, African-American population in Michigan, but uh, 45% of the cases um, hit, our, hit our community, uh, death, the deaths were that high in our community. And so I'm an artist that knows, everybody knows me and I know a lot of people. And so I can't um, count the amount of people I've lost and my friends and family have lost. I've had serious personal losses. I lost three people in one week. Um, and, uh, you know, my close friends who've lost their, their, their fathers, their grandmothers, their aunties, their sisters. I mean, we, and so, um, I was in shock, you know, I was so first I was watching all my gigs disappear, you know, my tour, my book, uh, we want our bodies back came out the end of March during the pandemic on HarperCollins, Amistad. It was a, such a big deal for me. I had a tour set up all over the country. So the money I make mm -hmm. in March and April takes care of my family for um, the majority of the year. So the people don't understand that, but that's next. So most of my income for the year was wiped out in two months. And so that was hard. And, but then when my friends started dying and my friend's family members started dying, um, I didn't care about money <laughs> anymore. I just said, okay, mm -hmm. I'm gonna figure this out. Our unemployment doesn't even pay my mortgage. Um, so, but I need it. I need some kind of consistent income and I'll have to try to find some work. And so. My everything changed. I mean, I had to, I was a person that never did Instagram and Facebook lives. I thought it was corny when I was at home. I wanted to be at home. And I had to take to the, I had to go to where the people were. Same way I went to the Apollo. I had to take my butt to the internet. Yeah. And and I went on. I set up a, a virtual independent bookstore tour. So I I actually um, supported independent and black owned and revolutionary bookstores um, and did a tour for We Want Our Bodies Back with those stores only. And so that helped them too because they needed the support and help push my um we want our bodies back into the stratosphere and it's gotten extremely well reviewed it's being um purchased well it's doing well considering i'm not out here on the pavement um and so everything changed and i'm you know i've been i've been working though as deep as like you know you figure it out you know i just um i'm on common's new album shout out to kareem riggins for calling me and oh, wow. i and for asking me to, to write Beautiful Revolution. So I wrote the poem that goes with the name of his album. So the first thing you hear on his album, I uh, had Jeff Mills, who's a techno uh, legend and pioneer, and Eddie Folks, the godfather of techno from Detroit. We have a record out called The Crystal City is Alive. Uh, so a techno record out with them. Wow. So this is 2020, you know, like with all the heartbreak um, and all the things I've lost, um, I just, I put more, I put more energy in recording and uh, things that I don't always have time to do. Uh, I'm writing a, a young adult uh, novel in verse. I'm writing a children's book. Wow. Uh, you know, so I'm just continuing to, you never have time to do these things. You know, you're, you're busy gig work. You're busy, you're busy just on the road. And I'm at home. My son is 14. My son, King, is upstairs in school. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so um, it just changes, you know, changed everything that what mattered. You know what I mean? So I'm just blessed to be healthy. You know, to be honest, like, you know, I've, I, my friends have not made it. All of them have not made it and through this. And so, and I don't know who else I will lose. Um, but my son is healthy and my, my immediate family is intact right now. Um, you know, we worry. We don't see my mother the way we like to. Um, yeah. But it's so it's a very sad time, you know. Um, we just lost Naomi Law Magic. You know, she was 97 years old, our Detroit Poet Laureate. was one of my mentors. So I've been crying for two days straight, you know. So mm -hmm. there's there's all this sadness, and um, but you you the work and and the poetry and the writing, is what pushes me through it all, truly, you know. 
Um, yeah, and so the pandemic of racism, though, is not yeah. new. So we were just about to yeah. ask about that. Like, so I speak about that now because it's like, you know, this is new for some people, you know. So for right. those of us who've been in on the front line, like, you know, Amadou Diallo, I was there, you know, right. in Ferguson, right. me and Talib and Rosa Clemente, you know, we were on the ground in Ferguson for Mike Brown. I spoke in Mike Brown's um, memorial a year later, um, like the crust of his father. And so, I mean, the artists, a lot of artists, activists who do this work really don't get the get the nods or people don't say their names, but we've been doing this work and it's not for celebrity activism. It's just because of what we do. And it's embedded in the DNA of my first from my first book in 1997. My radical voice was already there in my early 20s. And I haven't changed. I'm the same motherfucker. Like I'm just better. I've just sharpened my sword and my poems are even tighter than ever. And so, but all of it is about the, the liberation and freedom of my people. And that has that's what that's what that's what Detroit made. And and I don't waver from that. Like everything is that. It's radical black love, it's liberation music, it's it's all those things. Um in different forms. It's not just one thing. Um I don't write speeches, you know, I write poems. Mm-hmm. And so but I know poems are important, whether people say they are or not. I know that they changed my life and I know that they um have inspired other young people, young black girls in particular. And young white girls, man, young white girls shaking, shaking and crying and hugging me. Oh, so, let's be clear. You know, it ain't about I only can affect one community because that's just not the truth. And I know little girls everywhere need poets like me to tell them that they're possible. And so, you know, and so that's it's been deep. But, yeah, you know, I have a poem called I Can't Breathe, you know, in my book. That's the last words of George Floyd. But that that poem was written for. Eric Garner, you know, that was written for Mike Brown. That was written for Tamir Rice, you know. Um, Every book I've written, Sunlight Through Bullet Holes and God is Not an American, is riddled with um, the call against, you know, the the fight against police violence against black bodies, you know. So some of us been doing this work, and so now now we have the attention. Now I'm I'm doing—getting reviews for a book that I would have never gotten reviews for. We want our bodies back with Sandra Bland. I mean, you know, Sandra Bland, say her name, like Breonna Taylor. Like these, this is not new work for us, you know, but I am happy that some of us who have had radical voices who are often uh, not invited or pushed to the side are now being centered in this movement. And and I think it's an important um, time for us to be centered and we should be um, because we've been in the work for a long time. Very important. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, your your white audience. Um, yeah, I, I, one they like me. <laughs> the rowdy one. The rowdy one. It's you know uh, it reminds me of of Black Ann's white audience, um, and that a lot of our listeners are that are well-meaning white mm-hmm. people who want yeah. to learn more about just black culture in general, but who also want to fight against racism. So I'd be interested to hear about your uh, relationship with white people as it relates to your career and your craft. Um, How how do you, you know, think you've impacted them? How have they maybe told you you've impacted them and, and what that sort of relationship has been like? Absolutely. I mean, you know, and I don't know if it's that I even have a relationship. They mean, people just people, you know, and at the end of the day, and, and I've been on college campuses for most of my career, and, and my, most of the colleges I've attended have been majority white colleges. Mm. So it's either a black student union from the college bringing me or the white English department or some rowdy ass white kids <laughs> who think I'm Annie DeFranco or whatever, right, right. right? And so 
that's been the consistent thing. I mean, I, and I've performed all over the world, so I'm not just, I haven't just been performing for Americans. I've, I've performed at Potsdamer Platz and for the Berlin, um, po uh, Berlin International Poetry Festival. I was the youngest poet on the bill, the only American, performing in front of thousands of Germans. And wow. they translated my work into German. And I watched German girls cry and read my poems in German while I was reading. I mean, this has been my life. It's it's here. You know, it's deep. This German man walked up to me while I was in Germany years ago, and he kind of grabbed my arm, big old German white man. <laughs> I was like, yo, he about to kill me. And, um, and he said, you know, it's a shame they don't appreciate you in your own country. And I was like, well, damn, there's that. And and so you know I don't all 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 kids need CISO. Let me just say this: our education system is segregated in this country, which is why we have do the people like Donald Trump and his followers. Um, it's why they still exist because this is ingrained like in institutionalized racism, right? It's ingrained in our U.S. education system. Like yep. that's why it's not just at home the very racist mom and dad. It's in the it's in the books and it's the way that we're taught. And so. The, you know, I went up to like Michigan State years ago, and I, I was speaking in front of like five. They brought like five English classes, and I've had this experience many times. Where I'm talking to these are young people, young white kids who want to study literature and teach. And here's right. the problem: that they all they're learning is the same five white boys I learned. You know what I mean? When I was in school 20 years before them. So if we're still just telling them that only Elliot and Walt Whitman and Frost and Shakespeare, you know, and Thoreau and, you know, and, and Sylvia Platt, Emily Dickinson, like, these are the only writers that matter. This is the template from all great writing comes, I, you know, and I'm speaking about poetry specifically, then mm -hmm. what's the problem? And... You can't tell me if you can regurgitate Yeats and 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 uh, and and Kaufman and I mean whatever all your different right. people that you love, but you can't tell me who I was like put your I remember it. I mean that this is at Michigan State. Those are college kids. Also did it at Cranbrook, which is a majority white, very rich school in the suburbs of Detroit, very established, very celebrated school. Cost a whole like fifty grand a year to go to Cranbrook. Wow. And, and so Cranbrook, you know, and I did a Black History Month program, and I said, this is really amazing. So I told the kids, I said, put your hands up if you know who um, Emily Dickinson is or if you've heard of T.S. Eliot. And so they're all waving their hands in the air. And I was like, if you know who Sonia Sanchez is, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up if you know who Amiri Baraka is. Keep your hands mm -hmm. up. And, I mean, this it was, a, it was a collective sound of the hands going down. Wow. All these kids. I had the whole high school. And I looked at them. I said, your parents are paying all this money for you to go to school and you're only getting half of the information that you deserve. White students deserve to know about black arts movement writers too. Hmm. White students deserve to know about the Harlem Renaissance. Why don't they? This hmm. is American culture that we created. Why, why are we only teaching a portion of it? And then we wonder, and because you know why? Because they want us to go to, our, go to prison or to work. You know, they want work for, workforce. They don't want intellectuals. They, want, they don't want global thinkers. Because our, this country has so much money. Our children, my son, King, King is a global thinker. Mm. He knows, he's seen the world because in my life, he's been able to travel around it. And he also sees himself in it and that it belongs to him. And so we teach black children that they, we tell them that they're minorities, which is mm. bullshit. Right. Uh, we, we, we bang this cuss word on top of their heads and tell them that they're less than everybody when they are the planet, when the planet looks exactly like them. And um, this, is, this, is, this is the sly of America, you know, that we have to yeah. stop. We have to stop lying to our children. All our children, black, brown, white, other, you know, our indigenous, our Latino babies, all of them. Yeah. They have to understand that we all come from the same source, but but black culture, you know, like, we, that is American culture. Like, we create, right. you know, that's right. cool. 
we we made it, you know, whether it's an ad campaign or anything else, everything derives from our community. Uh, and we just have to see that, you know, and it, so it's hard to see your reflection in something that's when you're told it's not your reflection, when it's yours. Iambic pentameter is theirs. That's double Dutch. It's not... It's not, wow. it's not, but they make it inaccessible and water it down and put other people's faces on it, this thing called poetry specifically, mm -hmm. and then they don't think it's theirs, and it is. And so I'm wow. one person, but anytime they're in front of me, I let them know. But yeah, the white man, the white girl came up to me, little white girl in Cranbrook. I mean, I remember being at, uh, where was it, Purdue University, sort of African American studies class with all white kids, right? Studying African American oh, studies. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Of course. Maybe like two black kids in the whole right. school in the class. And the, I mean, this girl is shaking. You know, saying that, you know, your work, you know, changed me. And, you know, I've never had a poet or writer come into a classroom that talk like a normal person. They usually just read from their book and then they do a book signing. But you talk to us like we're people. And so, you know, you know, everyone wants to feel more human and connected. And so, yeah, we're, we're doing a disservice to everybody. But I mean, I, I've performed on kinds of people internationally. And so French audiences, German audiences, South American audiences, South African audiences. So I'm, I'm past the black and white of it all. You know, like yeah. the, the fact that I've been able to uh, transform rooms that didn't speak English is more interesting to me even. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so, um, yeah, so this is fascinating. And I am, uh, I am excited. You and I, uh, we talked before we started recording and, and you offered to, uh, to read one of your, one of your works for us. But before I ask you to do that, Okay. Um, I'm really interested in, by the way, um, I can't breathe because uh, for okay. obvious reasons, um, okay. but I'll leave it up to you. Uh, but, but I, I've noticed, so I'm the oldest child of three, uh, both of my sisters, April's right here with me, but both of them are younger than me. They're black women, young black women. I, uh, you know, I've heard you talk about young people and, and, and black women in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, when I think about the way that you present yourself to the world with such confidence and with such, um, such the way you hold your head up, um, I, I know so many black women aren't, don't feel comfortable doing that or aren't able to, or aren't, are told they're not supposed to, because it comes off as whatever to some people, um, and same with black men. Um, I wonder if you could give, if you could speak directly to, to black women, um, about, um, about existing in this world and knowing your knowing their worth and knowing their and not being afraid to to sort of proclaim that worth uh, to to the rest of the world. It's just so uh, heartening and refreshing and, yeah. and emotional for me to hear you just have a conversation with you because of how you present yourself. And I just I want that for every for every black woman. And so I I, I wonder if you could just speak directly to them. Well, you know, just I want to just say, you know, to them directly and thank you to you, you know, for for caring. Having sisters helps, you know, because yeah. <laughs> um, I have five brothers. Right. Oh, man. I, I, rose up, I, I was raised very protected by by my brothers and my daddy my whole life, um, which actually con is connected to my strength, to be honest, um, and my ability to feel strong, even in a room full of men. And um, or an open mic with all male voices or a hip hop ministry that suppresses women's voices that I've been able to push through um, just to tell them that they're not alone. I remember years ago, a young lady asked me, I was in my 20s and I had an afro at the time. And she said, how do you get the nerve to just to just do that? Hmm. And I said, to do what? She said, just to wear your hair like that, to not perm it. 
And I was like, wow, you know, like something small like that. It was such a small thing for me to have a big old afro, you know, to have my hair natural. But for her, it, it was um, it was extraordinary that I was able to walk and have that choice and not care what people thought about it. Um, and now I have a head full of locks, you know. But even the afro, I think, was even more of a statement of um, independence and, and freedom than locks because locks have become much more you know, acceptable or whatever. Right. The afro is something that's, it tears, terrifies uh, folks, especially white folks, you know, all that, all that thickness. And so that you're not alone and that you have women that have been writing for you and waiting for you. And so when I found Indazaki and I um, and I found Audre Lorde and I found Alice Walker and I found these women, my mother gave me Alice Walker and Maya Angelou early and and um, and Lorraine Hansberry. So that that you know you have a tribe of women that are out here that are that are with you in an ancestral way, but also are walking on the planet. And then you can call on us. I can call Sonia Sanchez, you know, on the phone. She's not she's accessible. You know, some of us are accessible. You you can get to us. And, and and I would argue that we're we're a little more powerful than the ones you see all the time. Mm. <laughs> and so and and yeah, and that you're gonna and it's not gonna be an easy way, right? Because once you know who you are, you can't shake that off. And don't you dare pretend like you don't know who you are because it's doing a disservice to yourself. And I've had to make get rid of people, um, and and, and people that I was dating or married to or whatever who who didn't celebrate me. So mm. don't find people who don't celebrate you. And, and make sure you're around people who are smarter than you. And so I'm always around people who I find that know more than me, where I have to actually say, wait a minute, let me write that down. Or no, I've never heard of that person. Let me write it down. That's why I, I get on the phone, I'm talking to y'all, and y'all in Philly, I'm like, okay, well, you have to know Ursula, Ursula Rucker. Really? Okay, you know Mama Sonia Sanchez. Like, that's that's a part of it. You know, we you know we have to be the ones who who, who share and teach and and just to know that they're not alone and that um, and that we see you. And um, it, it's not always the popular decision to be to be independent and not just go with the crowd, you know. I was a virgin my entire high school years, and I, I say that now. I never thought that was a big deal, but it is because now I'm inside schools with girls who think they have to have a boyfriend to feel validated. They gotta be walking, having some boy hold their hand, and they just kids, or and, and then they end up pregnant, you know, really right. soon. And so that you have a lot to offer the world. And even though as, as old as you think you might be, you're not, you're just getting started. I'm in my forties. I'm, I'm holding on to forties. Okay. I'm just <laughs> going to that. And I'm holding on to my forties. Um, and, and I'm just getting started. You know, I'm working on writing my, my best, my best book yet, you know, it's still coming. And so there's no rush into it. And that just mostly that you're not alone because it can feel lonely when you are smart and you read books. Um, you have to read. Like I was able to able to escape and and grow um, as a person because I read books. You know, like I read, you know, J uh, Jane Cortez and Lucille Clifton and Audre Lorde and Nikki Giovanni and Mari Evans, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mary Baraka. You know that there there's women. You know, listen to Nina Simone. You know, listen to these women. You know, um, listen to these voices. They're here for you. You know, Alice Walker. They're here. And uh, June Jordan. You know, uh, Deli Randall, Naomi Long, Magic that you're not alone. And because when I found those other women, I realized, oh, and I, cause I felt like something had been kept from me. Like these women were being kept from me, literally. So that yeah. I wouldn't know that I had women that were here protecting me and pushing me along, so. 
that's a long answer. I'm so no, no. I, I was just about to say that is it was a beautiful answer and so uh, meaningful. I'm getting sort of emotional just listening to you because it's um, it just is is honest and and just powerful. So I, I thank you for that. Um, I you know I mentioned earlier that we would love to uh, mm-hmm. just as we're wrapping up here uh, hear hear some of your work if you're okay. if you're willing to share with us. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm gonna read this for you. You are such a sweetheart. I'm gonna read. I can't breathe for you. And, <laughs> oh. and I, I can't breathe. It ain't the shortest poem in the book, but I'm gonna read it. And um, it's I wrote it. Um, it's really a mother's perspective, you know. And I read this. This is the poem that I read. Um, I've been in spent a lot of my summer in Yellow Springs, Ohio, with, um, going down to meet Talib Kweli and, and and Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. and the whole and Donnell Rawlings and Michelle Wolf and the whole crew that's been down was down there. The comics and the uh, I was one of the poets. I thought Amir Suleiman was another poet that came through, and Common, and Erica, you know, everybody. And um, it's so I, I read this poem there, and I read it because I feel like people don't understand how this violence affects us. And so I wanted to write it. It's very much from a woman's perspective because I left my son to go in the streets of Ferguson, and it was the first time as an activist I felt like I was going to get killed in a, in a peaceful protest. And so this mm-hmm. is for. Eric Garner and Mike Brown, and I'll give it to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. I'm in Detroit and I can't breathe. The air is being sucked out of my city. The poor don't have water and everything new means no niggas. I can't breathe. There is a smoking gun down my throat with promises of a post-racial America. I can't swallow the chamber. It is stuck in 19... and it keeps reloading after it pierces the bodies of our unarmed babies. I can't breathe. Because I'm being rushed on a sidewalk in the middle of a peaceful protest by a militarized police force in Missouri. They are yelling, I got one, I got one. I am half running, distraught, searching for Talib's hand. Rosa is a few steps ahead. The air is thick and ugly and dense, and I can't breathe. I'm being forced to lie face down on the cement in Ferguson with an AR-15 pointed at my back. A long, brown teenage boy is shaking in Rosa's lap. A young, thick girl stands up anyway. I pull her back down and ask her to please wait. In Atlanta, a beautiful young activist tells me she is arrested at 6 p.m. and is driven around by officers till 2 a.m. before finally being booked with no explanation. We know who you are, they say, hoping to replace her breath with fear. And now she doesn't know how to tell her story of being kidnapped. She can't breathe. Who can push out fresh air in this country anymore? The rich, the corporation. We should all be choking to death from Fox News, processed foods, and white supremacy. My 19-year-old calls me after hearing I'm in Ferguson to ask me to please go home. And he hasn't lived with me in years, so I'm trying to figure out the geographic location of this place, home. The place we should feel the safest. And I'm wondering where all this rage has been, because when you acknowledge race, you're called the racist. Mississippi, goddamn Missouri. On Canfield, this young man smiles his gold at me, beautiful, bright, and bravado. You from Detroit, you a poet. I saw you in the news. This is the place where Mike Brown's blood turned to roses, the stem legs of our boys long and racing, always swimming toward the sun, easily tripped up, life interrupted. The ones who don't love you are armed. As much as we claim this is our land, the world minority is running our country, our sweat. Our women, our mothers, we birthed this nation. Built it on free labor and death with no reparations. Ray in sight, insight, I need more insight on what this has to do with genocide, everything. We are here without choice, many of us, fatherless, some of us, warm-blooded, West African, Dakota, Cree, Cherokee. We a place with no place. We are natives, beautiful, somewhere people. News flagpoles and crosses and so many more. Little girls, plus those four, we will never forget. We are Moors, portrayed as whores, criminals. We the children of royalty. We red clay goddesses. 
We danced our forces. We the trees with rings of stories. I can't breathe. I'm home from a terrifying place. An Octavia Butler past future, past lives, scars we surface. I can't breathe. My son is four years from 12. And the park is his planet where he plays freely, where he knows the seed leaves the flowers if you plant it. He loves Bob Marley, Faith Ringgold, and Frida Kahlo. Walks with his head up and doesn't follow. Recites Baraka, sings the blues. He thinks wearing a belt is cool. He is simply a black boy with an imagination built on nations of poems and a mom that says don't mess with me. Cable is a winter luxury, so we don't get our information from the idiot box. I've already had to teach my son how to act when we're pulled over by cops. He sings them wave and like my poems. He sings them black and flirt and ask to call me on the phone. He sings them white in Dearborn Heights, accusing me of running a light I did not run. Mommy, but the policeman is lying. This is the reality too, son. When I can't breathe, I cry in a parking lot dropping you off at hockey camp, praying the white coaches and white kids won't try to suck the beauty out of your lungs, pray you black ice skate fast past the chokeholds, the dangerous walks from the store to buy candy, I can't breathe so I rush to get you from school daily, a collective mother's intuition always feels death moving around this winter in America clock, in these spaces where the air is thin, humanity is forgotten, an ancestral spirit is blowing hard and fear has pushed you into a place you don't recognize, a forced language is pushed into your mouth, whipped across your back along the Ivory Coast on a ship called Jesus in the Congo, through the door, no return, in Alabama, cotton field, in Chicago, in Cleveland, in Staten Island, in Philly, in Detroit. When you look the world in its face after attempts to hijack your spirit, take your breath loosely for a Lucy, I will inhale God and blow my last wind into your body. Your exhale be the Holy Ghost for this land. I can't breathe. 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 Thank you. Wow. <laughs> it sounds silly to be speechless on a podcast. But <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Yeah. I, I read that uh, before, uh, before this interview and it just, it, yeah. Hearing you, you say it is, it's just a, a completely different work then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Thank you so yeah, much. Well, people, if they're listening, go buy the book. You know, we want our bodies back as available yes. everywhere. And then if they want to support me directly, um, Sunlight Do Bullet Holes and God is Not an American, those books and my vinyl and my music are all on jessicacaremore.com. Well, thank you so much. This has been um, a gift, truly, to Jonathan and myself and to our listeners. Um, yeah. we, we can't thank you enough for sharing with us um, and for teaching us. And so we hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you so much. Are you kidding me? It was awesome. And I'll say it. What? <laughs> you say it now it's time. Oh. And I'll say the action yeah. item. <laughs> so now it's time for this episode's action item. April, what do you got? This episode, our action item, is a good one. I'm asking our white listeners to use social media as a way to um, communicate or display their acts of anti-racism, to share information, to share posts, to share your ideas, your, your uh, things you're working through regarding your anti-racism work. I'm asking you to couple your Facebook or social media post with an additional direct action. Social media is a great way to fight racism. It's great. It's also passive oftentimes. Hmm. So posting, 
posting things on social media um, is one way to uh, to engage in anti-racism work. But I'm encouraging our listeners to couple your posts with something that is tangible. For example, you post about racism's impact on poverty in America. Couple that with buying a book about the racial implications of poverty in America, donating to an organization that fights poverty and supports uh, black and brown people in America. Research the goings on of uh, organizations working with uh, people experiencing homelessness in your neighborhoods and support those in any way that you can. Um, Things that uh, are more direct, that have uh, more direct consequences associated with them. That could even be directing your Facebook post to a specific person. That racist uncle that you're not going to be able to see, you know, this, this Christmas, thank goodness. Instead of sharing something on your, your wall, you call them, right? Your Time wall? Timeline. Timeline. On your timeline. I, I got it. <laughs> Instead of sharing something on your timeline, write an email to that uncle about that, uh, that topic. Or send a, a DM to that What's person. That What's that stand for, April? It's a... Um, direct message. Go a on. direct message. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> to that person. Um, make it more impactful, more direct. I think for some people, the act of sharing something that involves racism on Facebook is still very scary, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. very uh, makes them uncomfortable. That's okay. If you're at the stage where you're deciding whether or not to begin posting on social media about your anti-racism work, okay, start there. Get comfortable with that and then come back to this action item and say, okay, what's the next step? I'm posting about racism all day, every day. My, my followers and my friends on Facebook know what I'm about. Now I'm going to give them a little more. Here are organi- organizations to donate to. Here are books to read. Here are... Um, your actions that you can do, you know, every day to to enhance your 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 anti racist footprint, I call it. Love that. Just made it up right now. Love on the that spot. for us. Love yeah. that for us too. Good for you. Okay. And that's that. This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me. And our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.